0: Good evening and Zechariah chapter 3 tonight. This wonderful chapter as we've seen it unfold before us has so many blessings for the church as all of the book of Zechariah did for the church in the Old Testament. I have found the church in all ages in the scriptures. We didn't have to wait for the day of Pentecost. The church had been here long before the day of Pentecost. There was a man by the name of Abel. And we know he was the first one to enter into glory, but there's going to be many after him. And here in the book of Zechariah chapter 3, this chapter starts in the very beginning. The adversary is stifled. I I just can't appreciate that enough. But in chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, The Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuked thee. And I appreciate that power about our God, that He is dealing with a created being. He's dealing with something He has created. It is His devil. It is His Satan. He has him in complete control, and He's only able to do what He has permission to do. How much effect he has today, I don't know, but I know this, that the problems that are caused in society is not the problems of the devil, they're the problems of a fallen heart. That's the problem we're dealing with. And that's what God deals with in our salvation. And the second thing that I find here is that the Lord caused iniquities to pass from Joshua to himself. That's what happened at the cross. He took our sin. It was imputed to Him. It was passed from us to Him. And when He took care of it at the cross, He took care of it completely. There was nothing left over for anybody else to take care of. And He was successful in all that He set out to do. No one that goes to uh, hell did Jesus Christ ever have a thought of saving. That would be ridiculous. That would be the most bemeaning God. That would be a God we wouldn't want to worship. But the God of the Bible is the God that he causes us to worship, and we are caused to hear him when he teaches us, and we're caused to do this because he raises us up from our spiritual dead. Another thing that we notice in here, not only did the Lord cause iniquities to pass from Joshua, but he clothed him with Christ's righteousness. A picture of it, he was given a new robe, a clean robe, and this robe covered him, just like the righteousness of Christ covers the church. It is imputed to us. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It's put there on our account. It's on our account that we're sinners, but it's, on sinners, but it's also on the account that he determined to do that. And then we find that he was given in verse uh, Uh, verse 4 there, that Joshua was given a fair mitre. Now that that word fair there means uh, clear, unmixed, or unalloyed. There was one cloth. You remember in the Old Testament, it tells us in the book of of Leviticus that you're not to wear a cloth of this sort with a cloth of this sort. You cannot have two kinds of uh, material. Well, it's not that that's the wrong thing. It is that don't ever try to mix works and grace. That's the what the Lord is sharing with us in that passage of Scripture. And here, with this fair miter, this clear miter, it was of one cloth. It was of one uh, uh, type. And it was unalloyed. It was unmixed. And as a result of that, we find that our helmet of salvation is not part ours and part God's. <coughs> Excuse me. This this uh mitre or this turban that was given to the priest was of one material and it was pictorial. It told the account, it shared the story, it declared the gospel in the fact that we're not saved by works and grace. We're saved by unalloyed blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing mixed with it. So we have a fair minor, and the church says hallelujah. We have a complete salvation in Christ Jesus the Lord, and it's not dependent upon what we do. It's not dependent upon our merit, because once you're saved, you'll see, I don't have any merit. (laughs) I don't have any good works. Before we're saved, we have all of this stuff that we want God to recognize, but When we're saved, when he gives us the new birth, we recognize we don't have any of those things. And so we're so thankful that grace and grace alone is what God saves us by. The salvation without human mixture, without human merit. And then in verse 8 of this third chapter, it shares with us someone of prominence is coming. Now he had come into the garden. He had saved Abel by his blood. But he is coming, and we find that Zechariah, prior to the birth of the Messiah, prior to the birth of Christ, is declaring someone of prominence is coming. And his prominence is declared as the branch, that he is of God, that this is the God-man. This is not just somebody coming. This is somebody of prominence. All the births that had ever taken place on this earth were somebody but not somebody like this somebody. This somebody is the branch. This somebody is given by God. This is somebody that was in the covenant of grace. This is somebody, and his name is Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. So again, the church was recognized here. The wonderful blessings of grace, as Zachariah declared it, we have the branch coming. And we find there that this branch in verse 9, the stone that I have laid... So here's a stone. We have a sure foundation. We have a place of rest. And that's where we're going to go tonight is a place of rest. And it's all because of all of these other things that God has given us in Christ Jesus. He's given us everything in the Lord. He has put his hand up and shushed sin. He has shushed the Satan. He has put him to shame. He has declared and he's put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, it goes on here in verse 3, and in verse 9 it says, One stone, there's one sure foundation. Now, when we studied about the temple, there were lots of foundation stones, but they all rested on one. There was not multiple stones that the temple rested upon. Now, the church is made up of many stones, lively stones, living stones, but there is one foundation, and that's Christ. There is one Savior, and that's Christ. And then we notice there in verse 9 that it also speaks about, um, uh, it says there were eyes, seven eyes, and we find that that is the providence of God. You know, the church is dependent upon the providence of God. Sometimes we don't recognize it as the providence of God. Sometimes we think about it, well, why would God let that happen? Well, he let it happen because he wants it to happen. He has purposed it to happen just like it's happened. And his providence, we live in his providence. We live for his providence. We live for in his purpose, and we live for his purpose. So he has everything purposed. Nothing is mistaken. Nothing is an accident. He is doing all things after the counsel of his own will. So it is a wonderful thing for the church to realize that all things that fall out have fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel, for the glory of the church, and for the glory of God. That's what we will sing about in eternity is all his good providence, how he put us. He put our grandparents, he put our great-grandparents, he put our great-great-great-great-grandparents in the right place so that at the right time we would be born so that we could hear the gospel, may not have paid attention to any of those folks. I was discussing tonight on that Zoom meeting with those folks about Peter and how God uh, the Lord Jesus spoke about Peter. You're going to deny me three times. You're going to go off crying. I, but I prayed for you. And it just struck me. He never said a word about Judas. None of that was ever brought up. He went the way as it was determined. But God had his eye, had his leash on Peter and all of the other of the apostles and would not let them go. They could go so far, but it was all for the glory of God, because it says that the scriptures might be fulfilled. They all left him, that he would be a sacrifice that would be sacrificed alone. Well, providence, we say, boy, it sure was rough on those disciples. Yeah, probably was probably rough on Peter, but it was all according to scripture. And some days I can recognize that very easy because things are going well. <laughs> you know, I rec- And sometimes things are going kind of poorly and I can't recognize it as well. But it's always that way. It's always that way. Well, there, God's providence and providing for the saints and all these glorious blessings in Christ, they are summarized in the last verse of this chapter, but it's just the beginning of the next chapter then as it tells us in verse 10. In that day, now, someone wrote this. I was reading some preacher, but he wrote these words. He says, this is our grace day. We live that we may glean soul profit. I like that. We live that we might glean soul profit, spiritual profit. We live that we might glean spiritual profit. Why do we meet? I, I, I need your fellowship. But beyond that, or above that, I should say, I need soul profit. I need to be fellowshipped in my soul, in my spirit. And that comes from God. So as we look at this last verse of this chapter, it shares with us these words. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 10. In that day saith the Lord of hosts. Now I think that day is the day that God has determined before the foundation of the world that he will make himself acquainted with every one of his elect ones. It's our grace day. It's the day that we've been fighting all our life (laughs) because we are natural critters believing that we can make an appearance before God In a good way on our own works. It's just natural. And yet the Lord comes. Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the scattering of the seed. And that seed. That God determined. To fall on good ground. Is providential seed. That it would be cast. Where he has the ground prepared. And he is going to do some production there. It's going to be. Uh, He's going to accomplish that. Uh, So often, I run into people that think that they are going to produce the new birth by what they do. And that is just as backwards as it can be, and natural man is backwards as they can be. The new birth is not produced by what we do, but what we do is produced by the new birth. That's what the Bible tells us. It's an act of God. So it goes on here. It says, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Now, in other words, the results of all of these things, the results of the First three chapters of the book of Zechariah, and the results of the remaining chapters of the book of Zechariah is going to be peace given to God's people. Peace like a river. Now, this peace is in our soul. We're going to have afflictions in this life, we're going to have afflictions in our body. We're going to grow old, we're going to grow weary, we're going to have aches and pains. But that never touches our spiritual well-being. Our spiritual well-being is based upon God and God alone. So I have to, for just a moment uh, tonight, look once again. We've ran into this name a number of times already, and we're going to run into it a number of more times in the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah has this name over 50 times, and that is the Lord of Hosts. Zechariah, short book as it is, has this. The name is the Lord of hosts. Over 50 times is that name mentioned here. And we're going to find verses where it's mentioned three times. We're going to find verses where it's mentioned one, uh, two times, and we're going find verses where it's mentioned one time. But this book is filled with that because God wants us to know. He wants us to know that the God that we're dealing with and the God that saves us, The God that we're dealing with in our lost estate and the God that saves us is all-powerful. He rules uninhibited. No one can stay his hand. No one can say, what doest thou? He rules in in such a way that no one goes unnoticed by God. He rules... I like what is mentioned over in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Would you read with me there, 1 Samuel chapter 17? This is David, and this is the account of David and Goliath. And I like David's answer before Goliath, before anything is done. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. Uh-oh. I'm in 1 Kings. Maybe I should go to 1 Samuel. First Samuel, chapter 17, and verse 45, we find David saying this to Goliath. Now, David, uh, Saul attempted to put his armor on him, and he says, no, no, no. It's not mine. It doesn't work. But here he says, this day, David said to the Philistine, verse uh, uh, 45, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defiled. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now I've mentioned a number of times times when we've looked at this name that Nebuchadnezzar had one of the best passages of Scripture in the Bible with regards to the definition of this name. And that's found in Daniel chapter four. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar shares this about his experience. Now, I don't know whether Nebuchadnezzar ever was acquainted with the God of heaven, but he had some things to say, just like we find Pilate had some things to say. What I've said, what I've written, I've written. God was behind that. But here in the book of Daniel chapter 4, we find these words, two verses, that are so filled With the glory of God, and this is the God, the Lord of hosts, that we're dealing with in the book of Zechariah. This is where our peace comes from. This is, he is able to give peace. He has power to give peace. Daniel chapter 4, and there in verses 34 and 35, says, and all the inhabitants, now this is a pagan king speaking, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he, God... Doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? This is the God of heaven. In verse. Uh, Uh, 34 and at the end of the days I Nebuchadnezzar lifted up my eyes into heaven and my understanding returned unto me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him that liveth forever whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation what a statement is recorded in the book of Daniel now whether Daniel overheard this statement by King Nebuchadnezzar or not it doesn't tell us but the Holy Spirit prompted him to say that, and that's recorded, and that's what we have here. The Lord of hosts that we find mentioned over 50 times in the book of Zechariah, that name means Jehovah is the Lord. He He is the Lord of our salvation. This is the God of our salvation, is in charge of the armies of heaven and the armies of this earth. When we Go over, and we're not going to do that, but I'm just going to mention in the book of Numbers, chapter 1, the name, this word armies, or this name, uh, word hosts, is translated three different ways, three different ways, in one chapter. One time it's armies, in another cha- passage of scripture there it's hosts, and there are quite a number of times at the conclusion of verses that share with us the number of young men between this age and this age that can go to war. That word to war is the same word that we find hosts or armies. So if we look at over there, here is this many that can go to war. Well, let's put it in context and say the Lord goes to war for us. He is the Lord of our salvation. He has the battle. He's going into the battle on our behalf he went up against sin on our behalf. He went into a great war there over our sin. And he was successful with that. Well, every other war he is successful at. He's successful, successful over death. He goes to war against physical death with Lazarus, and he comes out victorious. He goes to war over spiritual death, and he comes out victorious. We call it uh A grace that cannot be refused. Let's just put it this way. He's going to be victorious. All of his lost sheep will be found and he will cause them to know that he is their shepherd and they are his sheep. He is successful in every venture. He has never lost a battle. He is the Lord of hosts. Now that is who we're looking at here in the book of Zechariah. It brings it out. It's the Lord of Hosts that said, "Satan, shut up." (laughs) The Lord of Hosts. He has the ability. He has the power. He has the word. This is the God that created all the worlds by the word of His mouth, and He is able to do this very thing. Zechariah chapter uh, three, chapter three and verse ten, is one more example. When the Lord of hosts declares in that day, in that gospel day, there shall be peace. Let's look for it. Because it's going to happen. There is no longer any enmity between God's people and God. He's put enmity away. We're no longer at war with God. We're on friendly terms with God. We get to, we get to call him our father. We, we get to pray and pray earnestly to this great God of heaven, the Lord of hosts. We find that in... Uh, uh, turn with me to 1 Kings, if you would. 1 Kings chapter 4. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we have this comment about Solomon's kingdom. 1 Kings chapter 4. During Solomon's kingdom... Now, it wasn't this way under David. David was a man of war. But under Solomon. Now, both David and Solomon are a picture of our Savior. Christ went to war against every enemy of the church. Christ went to war against every enemy of God. And he will bring peace. But Solomon shows with us this characteristic and this attribute of God, that he is the prince of peace, that he is the only one that can actually give peace to a being. There is no longer this warfare going on. In first Kings chapter 4, verse 25, it says, And Judah and Israel dwelt safe safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. From Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Now, I don't think that everybody just sat under a vine or a fig tree, but it is a metaphor for what we have in Christ, and that is peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Isaiah chapter 2, would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2? In Isaiah chapter 2, we have this wonderful statement as, again, a gospel preacher, preaching the gospel, shares this, that God is all our salvation, that he is the only Savior. He is all our salvation. There's Look for no other salvation. He is all our salvation. Be contented with this God, because he brings peace. Here in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now that's not talking about what happens in the natural heart against natural people. It will not have peace in that area until Christ comes and settles the issue at that judgment when he says, Welcome those on my right hand to the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I've already given you soul peace. Now come in and have your body at peace. But the rest will never have peace. They will never have this. And it says, I used to sing a song when I was in elementary school. It was in our red book that we sang... uh, uh, patriotic songs out, out of and southern songs out of and one of them not going to study war no more not going to study war no more not going to well in this life that's the way of life but in our soul God has brought peace He raised us from the spiritual dead and we are attached to Him we are the branches He is the vine and our sustenance belongs in him and to us. So this is a wonderful thing about this sitting under our vine. It's at peace. God has brought it. He brought peace with that great adversary. He told Satan in the Garden of Eden, I'm going to beat your head to a pulp. Now you're going to have your way with me, but I'll beat your head to a pulp. And guess what? He was successful at it. (laughs) He was successful at it. I'll put down sin by the sacrifice of myself, and guess what, he was successful at it. All that he has ever intended to do, he has been successful at, because he is the Lord of hosts. In the book of Micah, Micah chapter 4, Micah chapter 4, would you turn there with me? Right after the book of Jonah, Micah chapter 4, verse 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, it mentioned in the last days, in these last days. Now that's when it's spoken about Christ's crucifixion. Here, in, I just wanted to say that because there's many times in the Bible it says, in the, in the last days, you know, never do we have the statements that are being made about the last days mentioned in the Bible about the last days. It's created in men's minds. If we see the church in the Old Testament, all that's settled. We're looking at it from a spiritual application and not looking at it for a physical fulfillment. And guess what? Those saints in the Old Testament understood that this is a spiritual thing. This is spiritual. We're not looking for that. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. A spiritual city. How many years before the birth of Christ? All right. Micah chapter 2. Excuse me. Chapter 4. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow into it. What? The church? Hallelujah, the church. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Not to some stone temple, but to the living God the Lord of hosts to the house of God of Jacob and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth in Zion, and the word of the Lord from Je- Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine, and under his fig tree, and none shall... Make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Did you see that? None shall make them afraid. You just aren't saved because you just trusted Christ. Can't make you afraid. In religion, oh my gosh. Maybe I better go check out what my profession was about. Or when the day that I was saved... I was visiting with a young man today, and he just keeps going back to when he was 16... He made a profession of faith. I've been there. I've said many times since the Lord saved me, I knew about Christ. But I didn't know him. He made himself acquainted to me as the most high God. That's something I didn't have to learn. I found it in scripture. This is it. This is it. So, we're going to not be afraid. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. This is my place. I have peace that passeth all understanding. I'm not, nothing can make me afraid of that, because the Lord said I will lose none. I, oh, you have unconfessed sin. Sorry, Christ has already taken care of the problem. I do have unconfessed sin. Every day I'm full of it. Someone, some man said uh, he thought he'd probably sinned a million times in his life. Well, once a second is more than a million times, (laughs) and that's just the way we are by nature. But God has taken that by the horns and overthrown it by his power, and he subdued sin by the death of the Son of God, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and the church has said, thank you, Lord, all the way. This reminds me of what we've studied over there in the book of Leviticus on the on that wonderful, once every seven years, there was a time of rest. The land rested, the people rested. But that 50th year, when the horns blew and everybody knew that this is the year of Jubilee, people that had never heard that sound still knew this is the year, uh, this is the year I'm free. I'm no longer in bondage anymore. All the mortgage I paid out, and I mortgaged myself and I mortgaged my family, all has been taken care of. I'm back to where it once was. And that's where we are in Christ. We're back to that fellowship that we once had in Adam. That wonderful passage, and they shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land. Well, what does that mean? Well, Hebrews tells us in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews that all our peace is dependent upon rest. And he is our rest. So we get to sit under the fig tree and under the vine. It's kind of interesting that over in the Old Testament, chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, it was a fig tree that represented a, a warfare started between man and God. A warfare had started. They brought up the flag of warfare by attempting to cover themselves with their own righteousness. And that's where the war is continuing among religious people, among everybody. The whole world is filled with people at war with God because of attempting to bluff him with the fig leaves. Well, the Lord comes along as the Lord of hosts, and takes those fig leaves, and strips them off, and they are naked before him with whom we have to do, but he doesn't leave us there. He clothes us with himself. The blood of the lamb cleanses us from all sin. Turn with me, we just have a few minutes left, but would you turn with me over to the book of Hebrews chapter chapter 3 verse 7. Let's go over some of these verses that declare what Zechariah was declaring over here that there's going to be peace. There's going to be rest. We get to enjoy that peace that God has decreed, declared. He is the Prince of Peace. He's, well, He saved me, but I still ache in my shoulder. All right. That's the way it is. But I don't ache anymore in my soul. I can get to read the scriptures and I get to have encouragement from the scriptures where before they were just, it was a playbook. (laughs) We're just, if you do this and this and this, you'll get this. And now it is he and he and him and him and him, the Lord of hosts. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the days of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, they do all err in their, where? Hearts, and say, have not known my ways and they have not known my ways so I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest those who had this warfare will not enter into rest. Take heed brethren lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now that's almost the same message that Paul was bringing to the Galatians. Don't fall into this trap. It's either Christ or it's not. It's either the Lord of hosts or you're in charge. And if you're in charge, here's the place you are right here. But exhort one another daily it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, everywhere these writers wrote, they understood that there were some people that had covered themselves with fig leaves with the attempt to make it look like robes of righteousness. Well, let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them. Why? Deuteronomy 26 and verse 4, I think it is. I did not give you a heart to believe or eyes to see or ears to hear. That's the problem. When he does that, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, my God, my Savior, did not mix with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I've sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished before the foundation of the world, the works of Christ were already prescribed, finished in the covenant of grace, and we get to see them played out in time. For he spake in a certain place on the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limits a certain day, saying to David, Today, for as long a time as it is said, Today, if you'll hear my voice, harden not your hearts. And if Joshua, that should have been Joshua translated there, if Joshua had given them rest, they would then would he not after have spoken of another day. That there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And that's what Zachariah is telling us over in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 10. Brethren, invite everybody over. We're going to sit under this tree and under this vine because the church is at peace. We don't study war no more. <laughs> we don't study how we're going to make ways with God. We're not studying religion. That religion's wrong, but we're right. We are at peace with God, the Lord of Hosts, who has done everything on our behalf. The fig tree in history is not good. Genesis chapter 3. The fig tree is not good. But what, what a delight it is to read about this fig tree as a place of peace because it's put behind us. It's behind us. We have this robe of righteousness now. Well, we're going to stop there, and Lord willing, next time we'll pick up chapter 4, and it's just more of the same. It gets better and better as we go through this glorious gospel according to Zechariah.